Welcome to episode 54 of Sass Mouth Dames podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. What's the first thing you think of when Shelley Winters is mentioned? I might guess that you start counting how many times she died on screen. I worry that in the afterlife, Shelley relives her on-screen deaths over and over, Russian doll style. In her breakout role for George Cukor's A Double Life from 1947, she was a backstreet secret for posh British actor played by Ronald Coleman. She became his real-life Desdemona in the picture, which set off a wave of flashy roles Shelley played as murder victims. Among her on-screen deaths, we see her fall victim to men in A Place in the Sun from 1951, He Ran All the Way, also from 51, Night of the Hunter in 1955, The Big Knife from 1955, I Died a Thousand Times, also from 55, and Lolita from 1962. In her memoir, Shelley said that she was always lucky when she had a performance in Water. She applied Fanny Bryce's quote about Esther Williams to herself, wet she's a star, dry she ain't. I wanted to forgo one of the pictures where Shelley has a grisly end for this episode. Why not choose a film where she has a pulse at the fade out, I thought. And instead of talking about how she died, isn't it so much more interesting to talk about how she lived? Did you know that Shelley Winters was a gifted writer? In 1980, she published her first memoir, Shelley, also known as Shirley, which became a massive bestseller. Her memoir is so full of juicy tales that are so vivid, you can see her swear blue blazes in technicolor. The way she tells it, she chanced her arm to get on stage when she was barely a teenager. She ditched her name Shirley Shrift for Shelley Winters and was cast on stage in Rosalinda, which became a big success. One night, she found Harry Cohn, head of Columbia Studios, waiting for her backstage. Shelley didn't lose her head over his promises of stardom. She gave a knockout screen test and was signed with Columbia. The studio cast her in Cover Girl, starring Rita Hayworth and Gene Kelly. There was a little problem on Shelley's end, though. Not only did Shelley have the courage to bargain with Harry Cohn for the terms of her contract, she rang him on a Sunday to do it. She had just married Paul Mayer, an aviator who joined the Air Force and became a captain. She changes his name in the book, I suppose you could hide a first husband's real name, before Google. The husband was due to be shipped out on duty. Shelley Winters was determined to have the time with her husband. So what did she do? She rang Harry Cohn on a Sunday and told him that it was her patriotic duty to sleep with her husband before he went off to serve. The thing is, Harry didn't scream down the phone at her. He agreed. Cohn called her nutsy and let her have the time with the Air Force captain. When she finally made it out to the studio, she took him a white rose and called him a mensch in her memoir. What other juicy stories would you like to hear? How about the time when she ran off to a hotel room with Lawrence Tierney when the war ended? That was after he asked her why she wasn't going to put out after he had knocked out a Nazi sympathizer who happened to be a Hollywood actor in the cock and bull out in Hollywood. How about the time Shelley went to a New Year's Eve party with Rita Hayworth? 
She was starving by the time they arrived at the big fancy Hollywood party. Some nerdy guy offered to get Shelley a plate, even though none of the food had been served yet. Famished, she thanked the guy and tucked into a delicious plate of goodies. Soon, though, after she ate for a while, she was in distress. Her dress was suddenly way too tight. Wearing a borrowed frock from Columbia's wardrobe department and a delicate shawl to match, she tried to pull down the zipper a little bit and give her some room to breathe. She thought the zipper would be covered up under the shawl so nobody would notice. But then the zipper got stuck up in the shawl. One or the other might have been ruined putting Shelley in hot water with the studio. Luckily, the lanky guy took an interest in the zipper mechanics and had it sorted. The nerdy guy turned out to be Howard Hughes. At the same New Year's Eve party, Shelley found a bedroom that was used as a makeshift cloakroom. It was full of the most glamorous women finding refuge from dull men at a dull party. Ava Gardner and Rita Hayworth were among the beauties that lolled around. Then the starlets watched as the most glamorous women ever entered wearing unspeakable jewels, gowns, and furs, which they owned. And they didn't have a 5 a.m. wake-up call at the studio. They slept late in luxury penthouse flats. Yep, they were call girls. Shelley Winters obsesses about food throughout her memoir. How could she not when the studio-imposed diet kept her limited to a thousand calories a day regimen? Keep in mind that a studio schedule was six days a week then, and you were lucky if it was only a 12-hour day instead of one that stretched to 15 or more hours. From her earliest days as an actor, Shelley comforted herself with a tuna fish sandwich and a chocolate malt, food of the gods. When she had a break from filming, the first thing she did was have a sumptuous meal. How could she not when she worked like a dog on just a tiny bit of food? Shelley includes stories about the time she was roommates with Marilyn Monroe. Monroe bargained for Shelley's first mink coat, a tawny blonde fur that you can see her wear in many photographs from the early 1950s. One afternoon while they were roommates, they decided to while away an hour writing a list of all the men they wanted to have sex with. Shelley recalls that they reasoned they should take advantage of pursuing any men whom they found attractive, since both were single and often introduced to fascinating men. Shelley stuck mostly to her list to her matinee crushes and listed men like Clark Gable. Monroe, though, went for brains over brawn, including men like my number one swoon merchant, Charles Boyer, as well as Harry Belafonte and Albert Einstein. Once, when Laurence Olivier took Shelley home from a boring party, she was determined to send him home on his way, even after Marilyn protested, but Shelley, he's on your list. Shelley names the names of the men she did hook up with, Errol Flynn, Burt Lancaster, Marlon Brando, just to name a few. Among the many Hollywood memoirs I've read, Shelley stands out for talking about her devotion to learning the craft. She studied with new, the new theater crowd in New York, and then in Hollywood, after working all day in the studio, she joined the evening sessions that Charles Lawton organized to study Shakespeare and the classics. Paulette Goddard was a regular in the latter group, and she was a devotee of the actor's studio. She could give those method boys a run for their money. 
In later years, she taught in the actor's studio. Shelley's performance in My Man and I is peak method acting. It's full of maudlin self-loathing, anger, frustration, and disappointment with society's failures. I could see easily Brando or Jimmy Dean perform the part if we did a gender switch. My Man and I from 1952 is worth seeking out because it has a standout turn for Shelley as a sex pot with a sass mouth who survives. I had my money's worth for the Warner DVD paid in full when Shelley Winters tries to give Ricardo Montalban the brush off by warning him, I'm poison for saps. Shelley acts badly with selfish pursuit, her character that is, yet she gets what she wants. She lusts for Ricardo Montalban. She has the pleasure of him sexually, and then she's not punished for her desire in the end, as women usually were by the scolds in the production office. Her character has much more to do than just look sexy. Shelley takes top billing, too, still basking in the glow of an Oscar nomination for Best Actress for A Place in the Sun, even though she isn't the main character here in My Man and I. The focus of the picture follows Chuchu Ramirez, a migrant laborer newly made citizen in the United States, played by Ricardo Montalban. He finishes the grape harvest in California and takes on a job at a small ranch outside Sacramento, owned by an unhappy couple played by Wendell Corey and Claire Trevor. Choo-Choo's official title seems to be Stump Remover at the ranch. He pulls up dead roots of trees lingering on the premises. His job on the ranch might as well symbolize the state of the marriage between Wendell Corey and Claire Trevor. Their marriage is as dead as one of the tree stumps. From the moment Choo Choo is hired on, Claire Trevor's desire is as palpable as the close-up shot we get on her purring pussycat that she strokes. It's one of those great shots that flips the bird to the censors, the subtext. Choo Choo Ramirez is kind to animals. He doesn't drink much or gamble. He's patient with women. He believes in the American dream, and he looks like an Aztec god working in the sun, bare-chested without a shirt on. Claire Trevor is beside herself with lust. The picture locates the moral compass with Choo Choo. He's not a fully developed character because he's so flawless, but his character is a reaction against the long-standing racist depictions of Mexican banditos who don't have to show you any stinking badges. The treasure of the Sierra Madre was made only four years before My Man and I. It won big at the Oscars in 1948, and as good as the picture is, it also carries the typical stereotypes depicting Mexicans as bloodthirsty criminals. So I'm not going to pick faults with Choo Choo. He's romantic and idealistic, and frankly, it's refreshing. He takes the moral high ground lacking in white folks on screen. The rancher, Ames, and his wife cheat him of his wages after Choo Choo works in the brutal heat for a month, ripping dead trees out of the earth. And that's the big conflict of the picture. One night, though, while he's still signed on working with the Ames, Choo Choo goes to a pub. At the other end of the bar, Shelley Winters is trying to run up a bar tab. 
She wants more vino, but the man behind the bar cuts her off because she owes him more than $2. That's a lot for a little vino, she chances her arm. The bartender snaps back that it's a lot of wine for a little woman and that she's been lapping it up all night. After she leaves, Choo Choo intervenes to settle her bill. He doesn't have the cash, so he exchanges his spotless black hat. Then he stops Nancy at the curb. She's in a jalopy that needs repair. Choo Choo assures her bluntly that he wants nothing from her that he can buy. Soon, he's hawking yet another prized possession to get $20 so that Nancy can get her car repaired. Choo Choo parts with a letter he received from the U.S. president. He has it memorized. Unaware of what was in the letter, Nancy nonetheless grasps its value and says to him, you gave it up like it was something alive. Choo Choo remains undeterred. When they meet again, he tries to bring God into it. He asks if she believes in the Bible. Truthfully, she retorts, when it's on my side, I swear by it. The scene at the table in the nightclub is Shelley's barn burner. It pulls out all the Method Actors studio highlights. This is the kind of scene that Brando or Jimmy Dean would have done with ugly crying thrown in and some chest thumping, a ripped shirt or hair pulling for good measure. She gives a big speech about what happened to her that turned her into a lush. It's operatic, but Shelley doesn't go overboard with scenery chewing like the boys would have. She addresses an empty chair, the ghost at the table whom she toasts, a Lieutenant Webson. Shelley Winters hangs a forearm on the table edge and spills out her tale of woe. Her eyelids droop, her mouth is slack, her spine sags. Nancy tells Choo Choo that she had an idyllic childhood, good schools and clothes, but for two weeks she had everything because she had Lieutenant Webson. Until some little thing went wrong, they told her, when Webson's plane went down when he was training in the Mojave Desert. Three years ago, everything got dark for me, she says, except for this bottle of sunlight, Nancy says, pointing to the empty wine bottle. The dialogue is so over-the-top maudlin and soaked in self-loathing. Maybe this is just a socially acceptable story for spending her nights in a bar room. It sounds more romantic to be in permanent mourning for the man you loved. Shelley's drunken bravado about her noble sacrifice wouldn't have been possible 20 years before during the height of woman's pictures. During the 1930s, our heroines on screen had to master the art of self-sacrifice and tweeze out self-pity as though it were a tick buried deep in an ankle. First-generation woman's picture stalwarts such as Garbo, Irene Dunn, Margaret Sullivan, Joan Crawford, and Barbara Stanwyck often had to renounce their own pleasure, their own feelings, their own complaints to carry on and do the right thing. By the 1950s, women on screen began to question if the sacrifices of the Depression and wartime were worth it. Is this a woman's version of PTSD? Women sustained losses, grief, lonely days and nights, and then what, pretend like it never happened once the war was over? No one threw them a parade or gave them medals for make do and carry on. Shelley's Nancy is absorbed with herself and badly behaved. She hangs out in bars and leaves men to pay the bill. 
but rather than call her tragic as some might, I'd call her human. She's messy, but you could pull 100 men's names out of a hat who played the same sort of character. The next morning, when Nancy wakes up, she sees Choo Choo's hat hanging on the bedpost, but she is alone in bed, unmolested. And because he did the decent thing, so does she. Nancy tells Choo Choo the real story, not the barroom fable. And the real story has no romantic blinkers. Nancy's still feeling sorry for herself when she says that her family life was anything but perfect. My father was a drunken bum with 10 acres and a statewide thirst, she says. Deep in the self-loathing of a hangover, she wants everything else to turn as sour as she feels. Nancy clings to the bad breaks life doled out as a buffer before she reveals the truth about the officer's death. Lying in bed, rumpled, stale, guilty, and full of remorse, Shelley Winters plays it with a moment of clarity, the first her character has known in the rough morning light. She looks like one big emotional bruise in bed. When the lieutenant died, Nancy collected $10,000 in insurance. That was the truth of her romantic marriage, two weeks and then a cash payout. It's not the stuff of greeting cards or ballads, so she spruced it up the filthy lucre with a little red, white, and blue. Nancy confesses to Choo Choo that she spent the money. Webson's parents were in need of financial help, but when Nancy finally decided to be generous and see them, she only had $1,000 left. Once the unsavory truth of her past is aired out to the sober morning light, Choo Choo does not spurn her. Instead of casting her out, he does the one thing she didn't do for herself amidst her self-absorption. He shows her empathy. He forgives her. Choo-Choo asks her to be his girl, and then he moves towards Nancy on the bed. His hat falls to the floor, and when the camera lands on it, Nancy tells him to watch that hat, Choo-Choo. It's our signal that the scene's intensity has to be deflected by a shot of the hat rather than the lover's embrace. Typical production code stuff. Choo Choo's black hat makes him one of the good guys and reliable. Nancy changes after the scene, but she's not exactly on the side of the saints. She's still whingy and she still drinks, but Nancy doesn't have that mark of doom on her that she first bore when they met. Shelley Winters gives Nancy a depth that other actors might have missed. Rather than be a good girl or an unrepentant lush, Shelley gives us a woman who is flawed and yet still sympathetic, probably even more so than the saintly field worker. Visually, Shelley plays Nancy with more complication than the steaming lushes we've seen from Anne Dvorak in The Walls of Jericho or A Life of Her Own or Susan Hayward in Smash Up, A Story of a Woman, or I'll Cry Tomorrow. Shelley makes Nancy sloppy, but she doesn't look so dissolute that you can't imagine why she catches the eye of some beefcake like Choo Choo. Her hair is tousled by way of pillow as much as muscatel. In false lashes and a heart-shaped off-the-shoulder neckline and wiggle skirt, Shelley's sexy, but she's not overstyled one way or the other. Not Skid Row and not Hollywood Starlet. She's so real-looking that she's a standout. When Choo Choo takes Nancy to a wedding reception, she stares at the bride. 
It's one way that she comes to reckon with herself through the context of another woman. We haven't seen Nancy with women her own age yet. Looking at the bride, she's awed. Nancy tells Choo Choo she looks like she just stepped down out of a stained glass window. Up until now, Nancy has only seen herself through the eyes of men in the barroom, those who will buy her drinks and continue after hours. The Latina bride is in love radiant without the layers of guilt and loathing that Nancy has, and for the first time, Nancy recognizes the difference. Choo Choo later promises Nancy that he will pick her up off the stawdust floor, wash her face, and take her home always. During two scenes set while Nancy waits for Choo Choo to arrive, we see exactly what most encounters with men are like for Nancy. In the first, she tolerates a boring man who's buying the wine. Then the look she gives him when he arrives, Choo Choo comes to get her. When she says goodbye, it holds more intensity than a preacher at a state fair who chases demons for coins in a hat. Goodbye, she says. In another scene, while she's working in Los Angeles, in the gay London dance hall as a taxi dancer, collecting 10-cent tickets for men who want to grind against her to melody, the look Shelley Winters gives her dance partner is so acid, it could melt a Buick Packard fresh from the assembly line. And then there's Claire Trevor. A vicious row erupts between her character and Wendell Corey's Ames after he runs Choo Choo off the property at the end of a shotgun. Ames turns to the wiseacre remark she makes and says, maybe I'm pointing it in the wrong direction. Now, with the gun pointed at Claire Trevor, she's having none of it. Talk about a sass mouth. She replies, could be, why don't you try putting it in your mouth? As she says it, Her fingers are curled up as though she were holding a teacup at a table with Mamie Eisenhower. Claire Trevor delivers her scalding burn with dainty manners. Ames intensifies his threat. He tells her he's not going to kill her, but you're going to look a little dead for a while. And we hear him deliver a savage beating. In his biography of his father, Wild Bill Wellman, Hollywood Rebel, William Wellman Jr. recalls that he saw something no one else witnessed one day during production of My Man and I. Wendell Corey kept blowing his lines in a scene with Claire Trevor. Every time the scene belonged to Claire, he flubbed it. When the scene favored Corey, he was letter perfect. The director, Bill Wellman, was losing patience. He needed to get the shot. Wellman took Wendell Corey aside behind scenery where no one else could hear except for his curious son who observed the following. Listen, you son of a bitch, Wellman said. I know what you're up to, so knock it off. Corey denied doing anything. Wellman threatened to put him in the hospital if he didn't stop. When they returned to the set, Corey no longer tried to upstage Claire Trevor by dropping his lines. Perhaps Shelley Winters was a bit like the character she plays here. Shelley also had a rushed marriage during the war to a man she hardly knew. She wouldn't be alone with that. Many women felt pressure to accept a proposal as though it were their patriotic duty. She rushed into her second marriage, too, to Italian matinee idol Vittorio Gassman. They never even had a conversation about where they would live, where they would call home before they married. 
Shelley had assumed that since Vittorio signed a seven-year contract with MGM, he was prepared to live with her in Hollywood. He wasn't. Their marriage took a nosedive when Shelley traveled to Genoa to see her husband play in Hamlet. Just before his matinee performance that she was to watch, Shelley was informed that Vittorio was having an affair with a 16-year-old girl who played Ophelia. Now, Shelley could have stayed married to a man who was absent for the birth of their daughter. She could have stayed married to a man who was sleeping with a teenage Ophelia, but she could not stay married to a ham actor, a phony. Shelley doesn't blame their breakup explicitly on his bad acting in her memoir, but it seems plain as day that a committed method actor could never stomach living with someone who played Hamlet by relying on the octaves in his voice. Previously, I would have given the crown to Ava Gardner for the supreme ability to narrate a marital row. Ava's battles with Frank Sinatra are the stuff of legend. The way Ava tells it, you feel like you're in the room with them as they brawl. But Shelley Winters might steal the crown. Her gift for recalling the details of her fights with Vittorio Gassman hits another level entirely. Now, I had planned to read to you the bit from her memoir about their split, and then afterwards when they hold an Italian press conference, when Shelley faces reporters in Rome and Vittorio rings in from Genoa. It's so good. But you should track it down and read the whole memoir. It's gold. And I don't want this episode to get too long. Thanks for listening. Join me next time for episode 55 when I talk about Jennifer Jones and Ruby Gentry from 1952.